The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. A couple of quick reminders before we get started. Um, I want you all to know that we're now on Instagram, and if you can follow us there, you'll see all the wonderful photos of uh, some of our wonderful guests and sponsors. And uh, we're on Facebook, obviously, and Twitter. Um, I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, Holy Redeemer Health System and Trust Financial and Mount St. Joe Academy for their continued support. And also, uh, be sure to check out my weekly column in Biz Women, uh, the online business journal uh, magazine for women, where I give my takeaway from the show each week. And you can find that at bizwomen.com. Uh, today, I'm thrilled to have with me this afternoon Anna McCoy. Anna is the Principal Chief Strategy and Global Officer of Urban America, which is a private real estate equity and development firm uh, founded back in 1998, and she's joining us by phone from Texas. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm excited to be with you all. I'm very excited to have you, and I have lots lots of things to chat about. Hopefully, we can get it all in. An hour go, goes by very quickly. Yes, it does. So um, you're, you are in Texas, and what's the weather like there today? It's actually quite warm as usual in the summer. Yeah. I saw a post on Facebook this morning of a person on fire, and somebody said, this is the weather outside in Texas. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I'll always take heat over cold, so um, I'm sure you enjoy it. Um, listen, yes. I want to dive right in, and as you know um, a little bit about our show, we, we love to start at the very beginning. And, and when I share mm-hmm. someone's story, I think it's important to talk about where you came from. And uh, sure. you have an interesting background. You did grow up in Texas your your early years, and you were the youngest of five on your, your mother's side and actually of 14 children on your dad's side. Uh, tell, yes. me, tell me about those years. That's a big um, – I'll say that's a big family community right there. And and what was it like growing up as the very youngest of all of those people? Well, you know, wow. Yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I didn't really meet my uh, other brothers and sisters until I was maybe around six or seven at the death of one of our uh, one of our sisters. Mm. Uh, And then my father brought us all together and said, this is your sisters. This is your brothers. This is your grandmother, your grandfather. This is your family. And we're like, whoa. What do you mean this is our family? Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of how it started. But my immediate uh, impact or or those who impacted me was my mother and my other four siblings. Uh, It was three boys and two girls, and we're stair steps apart, one year apart. So, uh, you know, I think once you got to a point of consciousness that you were were here, you know what I mean, that that you you were here in the earth, you know, things started to get real interesting because we were all so close in age. And 
I don't, I know I was the baby, and they probably think they they treated me like one, but um, I was pretty. Um, what do you call? It? I was quite a leader, being the youngest. You know, at four and five years old, telling everybody what to do. So I must have came <laughs> with that. <laughs> well, you know, birth order is always interesting to me, and um, I think very often the oldest kind of takes that leadership role just by default. So it's interesting to me that as the baby. Um, you you had those qualities. And just so the listeners know, in addition to your role um, at Urban America, you, you have quite a bit going on, and, and we're going to talk about all of the initiatives and organizations. Sure. Um, sure. You're an author, a speaker, motivational coach. I, I want to know if, as a young girl, you had those aspirations, or was this something that developed over time through your life experiences? You know, this is this is probably one of the things that that really impacts me more, more most now that I'm in a I'm in the middle I'm at the half line mark you know at the halfway park yes. part in my life yes. is you know that question everybody asks you what do you want to be when you grow up mm-hmm. well when they asked me that question I said I want to be great <laughs> <laughs> and they was like what do you mean you want to be great I want to be great. And then, then my aunt asked, she says, well, don't you want to be like a doctor or a lawyer or something like that? And I said, no, I want to be great. And if I happen to be one of those, I'm going to be a great lawyer or a great doctor or a great professional, whatever it is. And I, I think I was about the age of six. So wow. Uh, wow. for me, uh, I, I was very special, you know, um, as a young young kid. I was always, they, they referred to me as having an uh, 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 old soul, mm-hmm. you know, like like I had been here before or something, or, or that that I was full of wisdom and the things that I would ask my mother and father and my sisters and brothers, and so I think most of my life I really felt like um, I was kind of out of place because I didn't I didn't really participate with the the things that was of my age. Right. I always was around elder people. Mm-hmm. I had mentors that were older. Uh, I had older grandparents and uh, people that were not my grandparents but just loved me and adopted me and taught me so much. And so I think that, um, you know, I, we know who we are. I think when we're small, we, we just get kind of turned around a little bit with so many other uh, influences and the issues that people have in their life. But I think I've returned to that woman, to that girl that, that just loved. And that's what my mother told me a few a few years ago when I interviewed her, I asked her this question, who was I before the world got a hold of me? Mm. Who was I, Mama? And she said to me, Anna, you were so amazing as a young child, two and three years old. You had this unique ability to love people, that I have five children, and not one of my other children did the things you did to strangers. You would just touch them. You would hold them in the face. You would just love on them. And I knew it was something very unique. And this is the woman that I see today. Mm, that's wonderful. Now, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, guess what? You know, greatness is, is a wonderful thing to aspire to. And, and I love that it was, you know, it didn't have to be in a specific role, just greatness. And I know that's what you teach people today yeah. to strive for. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, you went to a very, very small high school. Um, there were only 23 <laughs> in the graduating class. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, t- tell me about um, Anna McCoy in high school with that very small group. What types of things were you involved in? L- let me tell you, I was everything. <laughs> 
And if any of my classmates were listening now, they would tell you that Anna was all over the place uh, <laughs> because it was necessary. Yeah. It wasn't because I wanted to do it, but when you have 24 people in your high school gra- graduating class, that means we played, you know, we played volleyball, we played basketball, we ran track, we did uh, Future Homemakers of America, we did the Future Farmers of America. I knew I was never going to be a farmer, so I said, I'm not doing that class. <laughs> Is that because uh, you don't like to get so, dirty? <laughs> no, I actually, I do. I'm, I'm very much a do-it-yourselfer, and yeah. I mean, my dad and I, when I was a young girl, and we, we lived on, I didn't know, probably maybe a couple of acres, I didn't know it was a couple of acres, but... Um, we, our home was directly across the street from this small little, little, little school there that had a total of 180 students from kindergarten through 12th grade in it. Wow. And, um, wow. so I would help my father paint our home. I was the one mowing the yard. I was the fixer up. I hate when things break. And so I learned how to do so many things. Uh, and my dad taught me so much about automobiles. I learned how to fix my own car, change my oil, change my water pumps. I mean, just crazy things. My dad, the gift he gave me going to college because he had given me a car, he gave me a, a, what do you call that, a manual that had every single part on my car that I could take it apart and put it back again. And so in 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 my reaction, daddy, thank you so much. <laughs> that those so are great you, skills to have. I mean, we I think we could yeah. it's not typical for women to um have all of that kind of knowledge and skills when it comes to cars. Um so I think, you know, that's something to appreciate and brag about. Yeah, so I was pretty versatile. I, yeah. I was uh, most likely to su- succeed. I was most popular. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't the most beautiful, but I was a runner-up, you know. So I had all of these things kind of working for me. I was most athletic. Literally, if you saw my high school uh, yearbook, not to mention I was the editor of the yearbook. Um, but uh, I tried to be fair. But when you're just good, and when you're a leader. I mean, you just it's, it's just what happens, you know. And yeah. so when you look at it, every page you turn, there's Anna again, there's Anna again, there's Anna again. Because I, I live fully alive, and I didn't just start doing it now. I did it when I was a young girl, and I am an overcomer, by the way. You know, most people will look at me and think that, wow, you, you, you know, you really had it kind of going on all your life. Well, no. I had my challenges in our family and in our communities. You know, I was molested as a young girl and uh, just overcoming, you know, was an entrepreneur, found other ways to be more resilient, to give back to love in spite of the things that were happening to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, talk about that. And that's really important part of your story. Um, yes. Because everyone has challenges and adversity. Tell me where you think the resilience came from if it if it was from outside influences or or uh, mentors in your life or was it really just kind of in your dna well i think it's a part of it is in the dna i had some amazing amazing mothers i had many mothers my mother her sister her her mother her my aunt i mean we were a matriarchal family And these women were absolutely amazing women. I mean, you aspired to grow up. They were strong. And, you know, they dealt with a lot lot of things. But I think my resilience, in in all honesty, really comes from from being a child of God and and knowing God. I have never known a day without God. I've just just never known it. 
Mm-hmm. I've just, through all of the pains and the sufferings, I was aware that there is something greater in the earth and it's greater than me. And maybe whatever it is, whatever this awareness is, it can help me. It can help me be better. It can help me get through this. It could do something because I couldn't see it, but it was something about just knowing it. And then my mother and uh, father, we were also, you know, they made sure we went to church. We went to the vacation Bible studies and all of these things. But at five, I said, I want to preach. I want to be a preacher. (laughs) Well, the church I was a part of said, you can't be a preacher because women can't preach. Well, I said, whatever, I'm going to preach. I don't know what that means that I can't be a preacher because I feel like I'm supposed to preach because I came here. I was born for this. I was born to communicate. I was born to love. And and I just decided it. Regardless, I couldn't protect myself as a young child, but when I could make a difference, I did make a difference. So let me ask you this. When, when you were molested as a young girl, were you able to share mm-hmm. that experience with the mothers in your life, or did you keep it? No, not until I was in my teens. Okay. And when I... When I saw the reaction, and in that I'm 50 now, so when you think about that four decades ago or five decades ago coming out of just coming out of civil rights and all of those kinds of things, there were still all of these taboos. You don't talk about this. You don't. You don't share this. And, and when the opportunity came for me to share it, I was in my. I think I was in high school, and that's where it kind of ended, in junior high school. But. When I had that opportunity, and there were several, there was my sister and, and cousins, and there were several of us, um, and we were confronted by our mothers, and just the confrontation caused us all caused caused us to retreat and not share it. We didn't mm. share it until we were adults and we had left home, mm. but it stopped because it was exposed by the it was exposed by the very question: Is this happening to you? And then safety came. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's so hard to keep um, secrets like that. You know, I think it, mm-hmm. it keeps you stuck in that place and doesn't really allow you to move through it fully. I mean, fortunately for you, you had that strength and that inner faith that you that is so mm-hmm. much a part of your life. Um, but I think it's. It is. It's very hard when when you can't share those types of um, experiences with the people around you that really um, love you the most. Mm-hmm. And I think also um, my my opportunity and outlet and all of us in that era. I think you know you didn't know how to deal with that, right? But you moved on, and it's so different today. You know, we're watchful. We're we're paying attention. Yes. We're deciding who our children are playing with. Right. There's much more awareness, you know, in the environment, but then that awareness also creates a level of distrust with people that are honest. That's right. You know? Yes, yes. You might be okay, but you don't understand. This happened to me and it's happened to so many others. So, okay, I know you're her daddy, but mm. let me make sure you are right. You know, and so it's an open conversation um, and so it still happens, but a lot more people are willing to talk about it. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a whole other topic. Of, you know, you don't want to have to live your life always in the defensive mode and, and not trusting. Absolutely. But I guess that's reality, right? You have to find the balance. Yeah. Yeah. So, listen, you've been married to your husband for 18 years. His name is Richmond. Yeah. And you have a daughter, Daryl. Tell me what kind of yeah. mother you are. Wow. Uh, 
I, one of the funny stories that I have about Daryl, Daryl is actually my stepdaughter. I don't have natural children, but when I came into Daryl's uh, life 18 years ago, uh, we were doing something, and she asked me something, and I said, oh, you do this, you know, because I, I had didn't have children. I had nieces and nephews, but she says, well, do you have a mommy voice? Oh, I thought it was the funniest thing <laughs> because, I'm, you know, I'm just talking, and the type of voice that I do have it can, can be obviously quite forceful and intense and passionate, you know. And she says, well, do you have a mommy voice? I was like, well, I guess I better find a mommy voice. <laughs> but I believe that the kind of mother that I am, not only to her, but to the, the ones that I have loved. I was on a broadcast yesterday uh, with uh, a young lady that was watching it who literally 25 years ago came into a program that I was doing in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, and she began to share on that broadcast, you know, in the comment section, how appreciative she was that she had an opportunity with me because as a small girl, you know, 12 and her sister was eight and her mother was uh, doing drugs and, and it was a tough time. And immediately, you know, I said, these girls need a mother. They just need a mother. So I just loved on them and I loved on them and loved on them until they have and still love on them and they have children today. And I have so many stories that way um, that I'm just a loving mother. I mean, I, I just want to love you. I want to see the best in you. I want to uh, be able to to do to impact your life, call out what's good in you, call out what is the best in you. I have a niece that lives with me now, and I say, you have many mothers. I am a mother. Your mother is not here, so I'm that mother, not just your aunt. So I have to mother you. I have to... Uh, care about you. I have to contend for your highest good. And sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's painful, the interactions that we have, because I want your best. And the fact that you live with me now, you didn't come to live with me just to lay here and live with me until your next moment. You came because of who I am and who you are, and you, you should be better having been here with me. So that's probably the kind of mother I am, and it doesn't matter who it is. Men, women, I don't care. Old, young, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you My have high standards, is, right? was in the 80s. Yeah. High standards. We, yes. We're jumping off the, uh, off the skyscrapers here. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what's in us. It's what's in us. It's, I mean, to be alive and to be human is extraordinary. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, okay. No, no, no. We are amazing. We are extraordinary people by the just the, the mere fact that we are alive and breathing and the brilliance that's running through our veins. It's just amazing. And so if you're mine or if you're not, I know that I see the brilliance in you. Tell me, tell me, Anna, about the years prior to your receiving your doctorate of theology uh, from St. Thomas College in, in 2004. Were those years spent um, kind of searching for, you know, beyond what you wanted to do from a personal development standpoint for others, were you searching for what your uh, career should or would be? Look like. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say this, you know, uh, I was one of those students that, you know, when I went to college, I was a salutatorian of that small uh, high school that was important to me. I was very intelligent. I had a lot of work experience. I had all of the pieces. I was not. I was a 
appointed to go to the Air Force Academy. So I was already I was I was above average coming out of high school. Going into college with a number of other above average people, I went to a historically black college and university in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Spelman College, and it was my mother's dream that I go to this this school. She wanted one of her children to, one of her daughters specifically, to go to Spelman College. Well, that ended up being me. All of my other siblings got scholarships to go to school in a sport or music or something like that. And uh, so I went there, but it was a liberal arts college. I started working when I was six years old. I'm 18 now. This is 12 years later, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in college, and I want to work because I'm an entrepreneur. I want to give birth to dreams and visions and ideas. I want to start businesses. So I got a job. I was in college making $2,000 a month. Well, I flunked out of college because I was making $2,000 a month. You thought because to yourself, there was nothing there that interested me. Yeah, interested yeah. me. I mean, people were trying to go to school to make what I was making, and I yeah. was putting these twos and twos together and thinking, why am Why am I here? Yeah, this is. I, I have no interest in this stuff. Well, my family, my mo- mother and father said, "Roll it up, baby. Pack it up." She sent my daddy to get me after the finals. Put her car on the back of that truck and bring her back to Texas. That's what she did. I went to work here in Texas, went to a couple of schools here, but that that hunger in me was not satisfied because I I knew that this was not my region I was supposed to live. It was too small. I needed something bigger. (laughs) So I made my way back to I made my way back to Atlanta, uh, worked for a year uh, and then ultimately moved to California where I didn't have anything. Basically, I had you know, I got a loan leaving leaving Atlanta for $1,000 to get me to uh, Los Angeles with my roommate and her new daughter uh, who was going to school with me there. And we, we went back to, to Los Angeles. And at that point when my money ran out, which, which was a few months later, mm-hmm. I was trying to get a job. But I realized at that point that, look, I need an education because these jobs I'm getting are not going to cut it. So I ended up playing sports and using my talent in basketball to try out for a team there at a local school to get back in college because my parents had, they had washed their hands. You know what that means, Susan. I do. <laughs> well, they wash their hands yep. and they do that thing and they say, you have to sleep in the bed you made. Mm-hmm. So make your way, Anna. And they didn't give me anything else. Now, I left a perfect opportunity of having a car, a place to live, tuition paid for four years in Atlanta to going to Los Angeles having nothing and relying on other people to help me through the process. And I said, I've got to turn this around, and I've got to use my talent to do it. And my talent was in basketball, and I started practicing and running the hills of Laguna Laguna Hills where my friends stayed, which was a lovely area. But I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I showed up on that day when the tryouts were and the coach says, hey, would you like to be on our team? And I looked at him and I said, I, well, I'd like to, but I need you to do something for me. He said, well, what is it, Anna? I said, I need you to walk over here to financial aid with me and tell these people I'm on your basketball team so they can give me some money <laughs> to go to school because I can't pay for my tuition because I got no money. 
Yeah. He walks over with me. Two weeks prior, I was in the financial aid, and the lady said to me, she said, I'm sorry, you're too late. We don't have any money. You can try again next semester. And I, wa- I was like, okay, well, I didn't know what to do, right? I thought that was the process. So as soon as I walked into that financial aid office with that coach, the same woman was there. She looked at me because she remembered me previously, and she says, Coach, is this one of your players? He says, yep, she's one of my A players. She looked at me. She said, you come back here and see me in two weeks, and I'll have your tuition. Wow. And so that's how I started to turn these things around in my life to start to pursue business. And so in that little college, uh, in those two semesters I was there, I left Spelman College with a 1.8 GPA cumulative. And in order for me to get in to college, I left high school with a, almost a 4.0. Okay, then a 1.8. Now I'm stuck in this place, about to be in some special thing for African American people. And I thought, oh no, I can't do that because that's not where I belong. I don't need special ed. <laughs> I just need some some discipline. <laughs> and so I don't need that, you know. But yeah. but this is this is what was occurring at that time, and literally um, during that time had the ability to um, just I took every class in business that that school offered, and I was exceptional. And then I knew this is where I belong, and then transferred to the next university. Didn't play any more basketball because I had my residency there in California. Their tuition was affordable. I figured I could work a jack-in-the-box and pay for my tuition and do whatever was necessary to get it done, and that's what I did. So that's when you – that you know, your love of business, which kind of leads me into my next question. Um, you and your husband work together um, at Urban America yes. managing real estate yes. development transactions in excess of $2 billion globally, I want to add. Yes. Uh, two questions yes. regarding that. Tell me, what is the secret to the success of you two as a team? Um, because that is a difficult thing to do. And, yes, it is. And then I want to know what your philosophy for negotiating deals is today, specifically in this current you know, economic climate um, and, and it's interesting to me when you just told that story, there you were as a young girl kind of negotiating your way right into um, school and financial aid. Um, just tell me a little bit about, you know, working with your husband, how you make it work, and then what, as, as negotiating skills, what's your philosophy? How do you do that today? Well, that's really interesting. That's a beautiful question, too. I think for us today, this is 18 years later. My husband and I started in business in 98. Um, And what was unique about that, my husband and I met, we got married. I mean, 10 days later, hey, will you marry me? Yeah, I'll I'll marry you, and let's kind of get on with this. And we've got a whole life to live together and to do some amazing things because I want to be married to a man that's in business and I can use my skills and talents to help to further the dreams and ideas that that he has. And so it was really, it really worked for us. And so in 98, we started this business together with several other amazing partners and organizations that, that really helped us. And my role uh, in the business was the internal side of the business, and that's the operations, the management, all of those things. And my husband is exceptional. He is exceptional when it comes to these external relationships, doing the deal-making, creating the relationships, the collaborations. And so it really worked for us. 
until about three years later, <laughs> after we had gotten all of the the business plan and, you know, all of the people in place. And some of us in life are what we call starters. You know, we, we do extremely well helping to start to initiate ideas. I'm one of those people, okay? And then I like to turn it over to other people. I, I get bored easily. I get, I'm like, you know, there's nothing else for me to do here. You're the real estate man, and so we need to do something else. So three years later, we started our Urban America initiative. And those initiatives uh, allowed me to, with this charismatic personality, with this love for people, with this amazing gift to teach people, to move into that space to further uh, empower the communities that we were serving. And so I think that that's what made it work for the two of us is that we didn't have to necessarily um, cross-pollinate so much over each other's skills and abilities because our initial years it was quite competitive mm. uh, between us. And by allowing me to focus on my real area of gifting and relationships and nurturing the relationships that we've created over these 18 years uh, and doing things that matter to community, to nation, uh, really allowed me to be the, be in the best place that I could be and also be able to burden some of the other things that I'm very passionate, like the books, the um, events, the uh, ability to speak and teach uh, individuals. So that's kind of that part. Yeah. The other part that you said, well, how do you work together? Um, the one thing that really helped my husband and I is uh, what we call kind of like double in impact. When leaders live together, you know, when leaders lead, uh, is recognizing that both of us are leaders. And we have our own unique abilities, and we have a way to to do that. But we, we came up with this philosophy of learning how to decrease and increase when we were in each other's presence. We would know right away as soon as, I mean, certain things, you know, or we'd look at each other, and then one would decrease or the other one would increase depending on the areas of influence that we were in. And we created a language that we could operate in. What was interesting, three years into our business, I mean, very few people in our company knew we were married. So because the issue there was we had all of these institutional investors and, you know, that there were issues with, with uh, couples being married and not wanting to cause any volatility with emotions and relations and all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I kept my maiden name for the first three years of our marriage so that I could do the things that I needed to do while he did the things he did until we were able to build a, a staff of people who could support us and give me an opportunity to extract myself from that situation. And so we just created a language by which we were able to work with. We always honored each other. We respected each other. Uh, we promoted each other. Uh, we created environments that we both could learn and expand and grow. Um, and, and it worked for us. It doesn't work for everyone, but it worked for us. And so when, you, when, when we think about this, um, the number one priority is agreement. And at least he and I could dream together. We could toss these things back and forth, and that was our commitment. It's let's find agreement, and then everything else will work itself out. That's a great advice. It sounds to me like you were extremely proactive in your relationship and really, you know, 
not just kind of handling things as they come along, but um, you know, having these conversations about being mutually respective of each other's gifts and and working towards you know a mutual goal. It's wonderful advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen, you know, many of us don't have standards for our marriage, or we call it the business of marriage. Yes. And it doesn't always work, but it does sometimes make, make things better mm-hmm. by setting a standard for right. your relationship. Right. Listen, Anna, we're going to take a quick question. When we come back, we actually have a caller on the line. We'll, Excellent. We'll be right back. Okay, thank you. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, again to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I have as my very special guest this afternoon, Anna McCoy. She is the Principal Chief Strategy and Global Officer at Urban America, uh, which is a private real estate equity and development firm. And we were learning all about Anna's uh, former life and early years, aspirations, and, and some of the challenges that she faced. Um, I had mentioned a caller. Actually, she, she's no longer there, Anna. So um, we're going to okay. continue with the interview. And sure. um, I, I want to mention you have several empowerment initiatives that, that you manage, um, including yes. <laughs> One Woman Movement and, and Woman Act Now. In, in this arena, um, this very heavily populated arena of women's empowerment, what have you seen as the number one issue that women face when trying to gain the confidence necessary to lead? To lead. Well, that's an interesting question because I think it comes from a space that women are not leading. You know, I, I think that we are – I mean, when you look all around, you see women all over the place doing amazing, amazing things. They mm-hmm. are running corporations. They're starting their own businesses. They're getting college educations. They're, I mean, just they're traveling the world. They're connecting and collaborating with women and men in other nations. And I think that when I think about that question, this is my response to it, is that lead from right from where you are. And try to retrain your brain about this top-down or or bottom-up leadership uh, capacity. And I think that we're teaching women that 
you know, leadership has to do with leadership acts. The moment that you have an opportunity to act, then act, and you'll find yourself leading. And so um, I think that, that that's kind of my response when I, when I consider, uh, are women confident? Absolutely we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there is a, a population group of women that we're, we're suffering and, and we're, trying to, uh, we're trying to lead some women into living a better life for themselves. You know, as a motivational speaker, as a uh, writer, or whatever the case, we're trying to say to women, there's a better way to do this. There's a way that you can overcome this challenge. There's a way that you can do this or that. But I think when I think about my role and my capacity, uh, I lead in love first. I lead in love, and that builds my confidence that, you know, I lead in truth. You know, and that's where my confidence is, is really, um, it, it really, it's really built. I love what you just said a moment ago about kind of, you know, leading right from where you are, because I think what that does is, yeah. is it's then you're looking at it as more of a, you know, a small step as opposed to this big, uh, grand uh, pressure that you put on yourself, you know, to become a leader. If you just in, in certain moments, as you, as you said, act, um, right where you are, mm-hmm. that's something that everyone is capable of. And then, you know, one step yeah. leads to another. You know what's so amazing to me about women just in general? I mean, you just got to love them. You just got to love them. They, they, they are the birthers in the world. They bring life into the world. That's the first, first thing they get to do is lead the one they brought in or, or help with others, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, somewhere along the line when, when you know, men or husbands or all of these other things come into play, all of a sudden we're not intelligent enough, we're not smart enough, we're not capable enough to do things. But we are. We are. I mean, it's just because we're doing it. That's I mean, right. That's think right. about this for a moment. I, I say to people all the time, you know, I'm going to start a church. I'm going to start a church, and um, I'm going to call it Church for Women and Those Who Love Them. Because churches, all of these major things are made up of women. You know, 70%, 90% of churches are women. But what if we took all the women out of there? What do you have? Turn around and look. The women are the ones that are doing the work. The women are the ones that are doing the work in corporations. What do you have? What's left? We're leading, but we're serving at the same time. So I think women are servant leaders. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. Um, One of the things that you do is to teach financial literacy, which is incredibly important. Um, You know, we... I I think the personal development always has to come first, but then there are skills and and things that we need to know, um, especially if we want to be entrepreneurs. Can you tell me um, the top three lessons when you're teaching financial literacy, maybe something that a, a listener today could take away. Oh, that's beautiful because, you know, I'm, I believe this, that everything starts in the heart and everything matters, okay? That's number one. Everything starts in the heart and everything matters. Number two is finances start with your word because your word is your currency. Every Every transaction you make, every decision you make, is starting with your word. You choose that. You make a decision about that, and then you start the flow of what we call transactional currency. Number three is 
you are talented. Learn how to use your talents and convert them into opportunities of value. You are so valuable. Your human capital is so amazingly valuable. You convert that human capital into knowledge or the acquisition of knowledge and skills and all of those things that then you begin to convert into what we call income. But the first thing you've got to do is work on you before mm-hmm. you can ever get to the transactional dollar. So that's three for right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Um, t- you know, Anna, you've done an extensive amount of traveling um, over the years uh, for for many reasons. And I'm wondering if, if there was one country in particular that stood out for you where you felt <laughs> most at home, and, and if so, why? Well, I would have to say that country is – Nigeria and some of my other friends in other parts. You know I love you too. <laughs> but <laughs> right, but not to before, pick one. Before, but... Yes, yeah. not you know you put you put me on the spot here. But uh, I believe that Nigeria really stood out to me. It was my it wasn't my first trip to Africa, but it, the reason why Nigeria stands out to me more than any other place that I've gone is because it was a place where there were so so many people. I mean, and, and there were people moving all the time at such speed, with such intensity. They're just moving about. Uh, the other thing that impacted me is they, they are entrepreneurs. They, they're the consummate entrepreneur. Now, we know of a story about them, but I'm a personal brand ambassador, okay? So it is my job to change that story. I have never met uh, people that are so loving. They're capable. They're smart. They're intelligent. They're genius. I mean, I, I just learned so many things. And, you know, here in America, we think we got it figured out. But this is what I've learned. When you think of countries that you believe are underdeveloped, this is what I've learned so well. When you go to those places, they're fully developed. You're the underdeveloped one in that system because you don't know how things are done, right? And so when it came to technology, and I I started going to um, the continent six years ago. And so we've had technology. We had cell phones, different things like that. Internet was real sketchy. But the way they used their Blackberries, their phones, and how they communicated, how they transacted business, I mean, the energy is there. And so Nigeria is that nation for me because the people that I met there, just so impactful so loving, so amazing, just capable. And I I was like, I need some of this. So I'm on my way to Nigeria in July. Wow. Wow. What what a wonderful opportunity. Um, You know, the more that you visit other cultures and and meet, you know, more people, the more you do learn. I love that you said that, you know, they're developed. They're developed in different ways. Um, And there's always that opportunity to share, you know, lessons between cultures. Um, yes. Um, Anna, we do. We have a couple callers on the line, so I'm going to bring one on and see what they ha- want okay. to talk to you about. Um, the first is Saleko Sharice. Yes, yes. Welcome to the show, Saleko. Hi. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Yeah, yeah, Sharice Saleko. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Anna. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> It's good to talk to you. You too. But I, ha- I do have a question. I have children, so um, sorry if they make too much noise. But my question is, um, 
when when you have a vision, God has given you a vision, what is the first thing that you can do to kind of go forward in that vision that he that he's given you? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that's a beautiful question because it usually is stem from I don't have money to do my vision. But I believe that the very first thing that you should do is obviously you write the vision and then we say tell a vision, <laughs> tell a vision to others so that uh, you can attract to you the right people who can help you carry this. And then the money part comes. And that's what certainly happened to us is that with my husband Richmond and, and I and our team as we were out pursuing and trying to raise money for our ideas, um, the challenge was is that we had to be clear about that vision. We had to work on the vision, which meant we had to write a business plan or an operational plan for the business so that it was really clear to others. So those are the first two things I think that you should do. And then thirdly, when you begin to tell a vision to others, you've got to have all of the right pieces thought about. This is what I tell most people. They ask, can I talk to you? Can I have an hour of your time? And the first thing I ha- I ask them, do, what do you have? Do you have a summary on what you want to do? Have you written anything about your vision? Don't just talk to me about it. I want to know if you have taken the time to invest in yourself and in your own vision by making it plain and making it clear so that when you give it to me, I, I can have a much better understanding. So those are the things that I think you should work on if you haven't done so. Okay. Thanks so much, Cherise, for calling in. Thank you. Anna, we have another guest on the line who I think you might know who has a question. His name is Rich. His name is Richmond McCoy. (laughs) (laughs) Someone has tracked you down today. Richmond, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, yes. Um, Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Hey. Yes. Hi, Richmond. Well, you know, Susan, when you asked me, the question about negotiating in the market, I sent Richmond a message and I said, listen, I need you on here to answer this question. So I really have a question for Richmond. Oh, good. Okay. Go ahead. So that's the question for that- Richmond. What, what, give us two or three points on how to help people in this current market and what's the state of it and how can they continue to move their vision forward? Okay, sure. Well, I think it's a um, – you keep hearing about this global economy all over the place, and some of the effects of that are really um, becoming very apparent now. And many people come into the opinion that the global economy has only benefited a few people in a few few categories. But in terms of people seeking business opportunities, you know, I'm a firm believer that the – you know, you have to um, work through existing relationships, and, and the, the relational currency is extremely valuable. Um, and that, you know, you don't always get what you deserve. You, you, you get what you negotiate. Mm. So that's really uh, important to, to be able to have some sponsors and business that you're going after, uh, understanding your value proposition, understanding um, really the cost parameters and what people are uh, customarily used to paying for your goods or services so that you don't, um, you know, talk yourself out of an opportunity uh, before, you, before you, you get in there. And so many people always try to hit a home run on a, on a particular deal 
um, and they'd really never even make it to first base because they they kind of overshot the the opportunity. Mm. So um, and people listen very carefully to what you present and what your costs are and how you're going to accomplish it. So I think you have to be prepared. You need uh, a sponsor, and you need to be priced in a in a competitive um, in a competitive range. Mm-hmm. That's great, great advice. That you know, three good things to remember before you walk into any meeting. Yes, absolutely. All right, well, I'll leave it to you, ladies. Thank you. Under control. Bye bye. Right, <laughs> bye. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Bye bye. So, Anna, you know, in reference to what um, Richmond was saying about, you know, the challenges that we face, tell me what, you know, in all the work that you do, and again, you are, um, you're an author, so you, you do a lot of writing, you're a speaker, motivational coach, you're managing this um, large global company, and you also have um, several women's initiatives where you are looking to support and empower and, and really help women kind of step into their own um, roles and purpose. What is the most difficult for you day to day, in the in from a professional standpoint? What do you kind of struggle with that you have to um, kind of give yourself that little pep talk? Up? Oh, did we lose Anna? No, no, no. Here I am. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. I said my greatest my greatest struggle is. Um, I think having so many opportunities and really not being able to focus on the right mm. opportunity. Yeah, right. Well, and, that's, and, and yeah. I think what happened, and, and I, I know that many of us are having that same challenge because it feels like a grappling, like we, we just have to reach out and we've got so much information coming to us. That's right. And I think in this women's empowerment space, um, we have uh, a proliferation of coaches in the market. Mm-hmm. We have a proliferation of speakers and people trying to encourage other people, um, trying to educate them and equip them to do different things. And then the, I think we have the economy that certainly is pressing uh, on the disposable uh, dollars that are available even for when we talk about personal development. And this is probably an area... I think that most people are going to choose as their least because it feels like we're all treading water. Mm. And I believe that that is probably one of the most uh, challenging things is trying to get beyond treading water. I feel that myself with some of the initiatives and some of the programs and some of the things that I think is important, some of the global relationships, the connections, the collaborations, that it always, it feels like everybody's doing it. That's right. And so because there's so much information out there, you you kind of get lost. And so, you know, it's like really becoming committed to that one thing. Mm -hmm. What is that one thing? And not being afraid that it might not be the right thing because you have so many other choices. That's right, yeah. Well, the good news is, you know, what we are seeing today is a lot of firsts for women. Um, mm-hmm. Certain, You know, I mean, you know, with, with Hillary Clinton's historic nomination, that's just one little tiny example of all the firsts um, in leadership that women have seen, I'll say, over the past maybe 10, maybe five years. What do you think is happening now that's bringing this about? Well, I think there's a general awakening just in the universe itself. I mean, it's like a perfect storm is happening 
uh, for women, you know, the voice of women, and a lot of it has to do with exposure of things that are being exposed uh, about the treatment of women, gender equality uh, being on the forefront, women's empowerment being on the forefront for some of the United Nations uh, global initiatives uh, for the next 15 years uh, that says that, you know what, we have to pay attention to women. Not only that, I think when we look at women's uh, pursuit of education, higher degrees, leading companies, starting companies, and really not waiting uh, for someone to approve them or to give them permission to do many things, uh, they are innovative. They are, we're accelerating uh, the genius of women's ideas. Uh, they're inventors. I mean, I think we're, we're entering into spaces that are no longer uh, off limits. And I had an opportunity to write in my book, Woman Act Now, Learn, Launch, and Live Your Dream. I had a, uh, a interview with Dick Parsons. And Dick Parsons, and this was in 2008 when I was writing this book. Now, we're eight years forward, right? And I asked him a question about women in leadership. He said, this is absolutely, absolutely the time for women. To arise now that was eight years ago mm. and he said to me who uh, Dick Parsons was the president of Time Warner at that time a very large large organization and I asked him I said what does your second tier leadership look like he said to me the second tier leadership is they're all women so within the decade they're going to arise to full leadership you know the the old boys network is changing and he did say this. He says, the, the one thing that I have noticed about women, they don't collaborate as well as men. And so now we're into this, this decade now. And, in fact, uh, I'm on a magazine, Women of Wealth, on their summer issue. And one of the topics is the new currency of women is collaboration. And so we're going to have to master that to continue this rise and be effective in all areas of our, of our life is learning how to really trust and collaborate with each other, do business with each other, do deal-making with each other, innovate together. That's interesting to me because what I often read is the opposite, that one of women's greatest gifts is their ability to collaborate, kind of you know, wanting to bring more minds to the table. Mm-hmm. Well, I think women do, but when we're talking about this collaboration or, or this set of women that's been in leadership, you'll often hear women who work with women, this is what's interesting, who work with women that uh, have an accelerated career. They become presidents of organizations, and then there are other women in the organization. They're like the trailblazer, right? But they're not collaborating with the women that aren't there yet or they may not be collaborating with the women that are their peers. And I think that, that we feel like we have to make it, and I think when you make it, it's our responsibility to also bring others along. But I think that there's definitely, well, consider this for a second, Susan. Look at our young people. You can always tell a, tell a direction that we're moving in, a nation is moving in, based on what their youth, what their youth are doing. When you look on the Internet and you see all of these uh, videos and you see how girls treat girls, they're not growing up in a culture of honor, in a culture of collaboration and corporative capitalism. They are competing 
They are fighting. They are doing things that males, you know, just from a, a male perspective of, of uh, physical fighting and doing things where we used to have words with each other, but now it's crossed over the line. And this is our next generation. And so I think as women, we have to arise and say, there's a new culture that we want to create, and we want to create it openly. Yeah, I agree. Um, listen, we, we have about two minutes left. We have another caller. I'm going to let her get her question in real quickly before we end. Her name is Shunda Wiggs. Shunda, wel- welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for, hi. That's my question. Hi, yeah. Coach Anna. Yeah, we, really, we have two you? minutes left, so if you can ask your question real quick. Yes, ma'am. Well, I guess my question is I'm 39, and I am in transition, and I feel like right now I'm just really starting to know who I am. So my question is, how do you balance the personal development that you you talked about was imperative with building at the same time? Because you feel this urgency and this rush to just start, because I believe I'm called to entrepreneurship, but I also know there's development I need, but I don't want to focus on development and not take any action. Mm. Well, do them both. Okay. Do them both. Take action while you're learning. Okay. And that's perfect. Yeah. That'll get (laughs) you there. All right, Miss LaShonda. Thank you so much for calling. Anna, it was a great show. I so appreciate your taking time out of your busy day to be with us on Women to Watch, and I hope I see you soon at another event. Yes. And thank you so much for inviting me. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Have a great week, and be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net. Have a great week.